Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm excited about my guest today. Uh, he has spent, geez, almost four decades, not quite almost four decades in um, the university, uh, mostly as a professor of English. He is currently at Georgia State University Perimeter College. He's a former dean, a department chair. Uh, he is my colleague as a a higher education fellow at Campus Reform Online, um, published in many different publications like the Chronicle of Higher Education, Brownstone Institute, American Thinker, many, many more. And he is author of a number of books, um, recently, Nine Virtues of Exceptional Leaders and Think Better, Write Better. My guest today is Professor Rob Jenkins. Rob, thanks for being with us. Adam, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm excited about this. I've been looking forward to it. So I asked this of everybody, but it'll it'll move us into my first question for you. Tell us the story of how you got into sort of English studies at large. Take us back to the beginning. Okay. Well, I'm you know, like a lot of people who went into English back in the in the nineteen eighties, um, I was kind of a bookish kid growing up. Uh I was the guy that uh sat in the back of the classroom all through high school and read Lord of the Rings and, you know, stuff like that. I uh, wanted to be a writer. Uh, and I, th I thought about other things. I thought about maybe teaching history and coaching basketball at the high school level. Um, when, when I was in college for a while, I was dating a, a young lady who was, um, let's just say fairly high maintenance. And so I thought, well, may maybe I should go into law because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to need to make more money. <laughs> But uh, when we broke up and I met my wife, uh, who was uh, who was not high maintenance, um, and she was she was an educator too, then uh, then I felt free to kind of go back to my first love and major in English, and then you know went from there to graduate school and from teaching. So that's uh, and and with a stint in coaching along the way. So and I did that. Um, while I was teaching, I mean, I, I, now when I was when I was coaching, especially when I was head coach. Now, when I was assistant coach, I, I taught a full load, um, which at, which at that time at the institution where I was was five classes. Wow. When I became head coach, they let me out of a couple of classes, and then when I became athletic director, they let me out of another one. But I was still teaching teaching too and doing all that other stuff. So, but uh, but it was fun. I I enjoyed it and. Uh, reached a point where I didn't enjoy the coaching quite as much. And so I went into administration for a while, that, uh, that graveyard of former coaches. Right. And, uh, I did that for a while and, and, um, decided I wanted to get out of that and just go back to teaching, which is my first love and, um, have time to, you know, write some books, write more articles, do some traveling and, and speaking and so forth. Uh, so that's that's kind of my journey. So I'm I'm curious. We don't have to spend a long time on this, but do you still play basketball? <laughs> um, I I I get out and shoot around. There's a okay. church right across the street from our neighborhood that has a really nice court, and uh, I I go over there and shoot. Um, I haven't actually played in a in a pickup game in a while. Um, I would probably break something if I did. But you know if the last thing I want to do is get out there and run up and down with a bunch of young guys. But if I could find guys in their forties and fifties who played high school ball and know what they're doing, because the worst thing you can do is play with people who don't know how to play. That's, That's how you get injured. <laughs> but, but seriously, but uh, when I was athletic director, I used to get into pickup games with our baseball players. And, oh my gosh. Uh, all they knew how to do was just hack people. But, but anyway, uh, if I could find guys my age, and we could play half court. I'm not up for full court. Then I would do it, but I I haven't been able to find that. So I just go shoot around occasionally. Cool. I so, can still shoot, by the way. I want to be very clear about that. I can still I can't jump. I can't dunk. A lot of things I can't do anymore, but I can still shoot. So you're the three point man. We just we just get you open and you can hit them. Get me uh -huh. open and I can hit them. That's right. Okay. Um. So I was a freshman at college in 1996, and I think I probably declared an English major maybe in 1998. 
you've been in and around English departments since well before that. And so you have a longer institutional and disciplinary memory than I have. How have you seen the field of English change over the time that you've been um, sharing space with English professors and, and people who study this field? Well, I, I think uh, in two main ways. One is philosophical and the other is technological. Um, I left graduate school just as uh, deconstructionism was coming into vogue. And, uh, you know, that's like leaving town on the last train, you know, before the meteor hits or something like that. Uh, I, I feel very fortunate that uh, that I didn't have to to deal with that. Uh, but obviously, the people who came after me and, you know, as the years went on, my younger colleagues were all steeped in that. And uh, that has evolved over the years uh, into what we currently call wokeness. Uh, you know, I see it. I see a direct connection there. Um, the, you know, because one of the fundamental ideas is that um, and, I'm, and I'm sure this is a tremendous oversimplification and it's something you know a lot more about than I do. But um the basic idea is that nothing has any inherent meaning. Um, and, you know, that that idea sort of bled from English departments over into social sciences, and now it's infecting the hard sciences. Uh, but, I, you know, I have seen more and more of that over the years as I when I was a department chair and I had to evaluate people and uh, as, you know, serving on committees and looking at at junior faculty members syllabi and things like that. Uh, I've seen this whole, you know, progressivism, wokeness, neo-Marxism, uh, and, and these are all perfectly nice, good people, but they just have, in my opinion, some very nutty ideas. And, uh, and, and in my view, it's harmful to student learning. I don't think, uh, I, I, I really don't think we're helping students the way that we could. You know, the analogy that I make sometimes, the the universities have basically declared that there's no such thing as truth. And so, you know, to me, that's like the American Dental Association coming out and declaring there's no such thing as cavities. Well, you know, then then what's your point, right? What's your purpose? Why are you here? Why Why should we pay any attention to you at all if this if this thing you've been warning us about all these years just you know, doesn't even exist. Um, so I, I'm getting off track. I'm kind of, well, let me, maybe let me pick your... your brain about that. Then. Yeah. Cause you say that they're good people and I think you're probably right, but why do they all have the same ideas? And, and my suspicion is, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. My suspicion is that at least one generation of the professorate in English departments now thinks that Essentially, wokeism is what the discipline of English is, right? That's the only way they know how to do it. Like, if you took that off the table and you said, all right, we're not going to do any activism anymore. We're not going to do any bit of indoctrination or uh, teach you how to be a good Marxist. If we took all that off the table, I suspect there's at least one generation of English professors who would have no idea what to do if not that. Do you think that that's accurate? Yes, I, I think that's accurate. I, I, and this is what I see when I'm on these committees and I'm reviewing their syllabi and their assignments and so forth. You know, I'm I'm still trying to help my students learn how to to write so that down the road they can they can write a report for their boss that makes sense and that helps them advance their career. And I'm looking at my junior colleagues' syllabi and. You know, they have all of these uh, uh, activism type um, assignments. And I just I, I I don't get it. I mean, I understand, like you say, that's the way that they were taught and that's what they think we ought to be doing. Um, you Would know, you one, say, one of my it, fundamental beliefs and, and you probably share this. Um, if I can get through an entire semester and at the end of the semester, my students have no idea whether I'm conservative or leftist then i feel like i've succeeded but and and it used to be back in the 80s maybe even on into the 90s 
that my my more liberal, I'll use the old fashioned word, my more liberal colleagues felt the same way. Uh, most of them anyway. But now um, they absolutely think that the whole purpose of teaching is activism and the whole purpose of teaching. You know, I was I was brought up in the tradition that we teach students how to think. We don't tell them what to think. I know that's kind of a cliche, but that's what I was taught. And that's what I've always believed. Uh, and that is completely foreign to this younger generation. They think it is absolutely their job to yes. to tell these kids what it is they should think. Well, that's why I dropped probably 10 years ago. I think I was where you are on that question of I felt good if my students couldn't tell. And once I realized this was probably about 10 years ago that without exception, every one of my colleagues on the left just did not care at all about even the pretense of neutrality. Um, And then it hit me like if everybody on my side is sort of striving for this this uh um appearance of neutrality and nobody on the other side is we lose um and at that point i became more of openly well, committed towards sort of conservative ideas well I, I mean that's that's a fair point and i have taken some uh some tentative forays in, in that direction myself just recently um Talking about argumentation in class the other day, I, I shared a pair of essays from uh, spring of 2020. One was a, a professor writing for the Atlantic saying there's no way we should reopen campuses in the fall. And then my response to him on the uh, the Martin Center blog, the, that's the Martin Center for Academic Renewal, um, saying, uh, yes, we absolutely need to open campuses. And you know, first we talked about this. This is how educated, civil people argue with each other. It's not name calling. It's point, you know, making points and counterpoints and so forth. That was the main thing I wanted to show them. But at the end, I said, "So you know, this argument's from three years ago. Who who was right?" <laughs> and they just what did they say to blankly. that? And I, I, I mean, they didn't they didn't have an answer to that. And I said, "Well, you know, not to pat myself on the back here, but I was right." <laughs> and I, I had, I had pre-prepared for this. I had all these. I started pulling up these articles about about natural immunity and about, um, you know, the the extremely low fatality rate, like point zero zero three for people in their twenties. Yeah, which which, are, you know, were things that I had argued back in spring of twenty twenty, because we already knew these things, and um, and it it wasn't partisan really it wasn't political in the traditional sense but now of course anything that rings of truth is is political and and you know it if you're speaking truth nowadays it sort of marks you as being on the right right Um, and i don't know if my students are sophisticated enough to pick up on that but they're they just sat there with their eyes as big as saucers (laughs) well they don't encounter that i i really you know they don't this is one of the things that confuses me. As you said, the university has been committed or at least the humanities have been committed towards there's no meaning in anything um, or, or there's no truth. But what shocks me is it's kind of very selective when they take that radically agnostic pose. It's like, say, about something like um, do masks work? What does this text mean? Those are questions where they might say, well, there's no truth, you know, like it, it's it's totally subjective. Who knows? We can't judge. But then on other things like, say, race is the core of your identity, like many of my leftist colleagues would say that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true that 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 race has undeniable meaning. Um, and so it's almost like whatever whatever they like, whatever ideas strike them as uh, good and valid ideas, those get insulated from the attacks of deconstruction and everything else. And anything that they disagree with, they just pour this acid all over to dissolve the concepts on the table. You know, um, well, that's, that's yeah. Well, I mean, it's it it's all incoherent. It's yeah. it's like the. Um, sex and gender are different unless we need them to mean the same thing, in which case they're the same thing. And so you can't win any argument because if you're, if you're responding to their claim that sex and gender are the same thing, then they say, well, you know, 
sex and gender are different. Everybody knows that. Right. And, and, and if you, if you point out that they're different, they say, well, no, but, a a, a you know, a, a trans woman is a woman. Well, right. then, then you're saying that they're the same. So right. you, you got to pick a lane here, but, but no, they don't have to pick a lane because they own the culture and they can say whatever they want. That you just put your finger on the problem. This is, I think that they've sort of figured out that they don't have to pick a lane, right? That, and this is, of course, baked into the cake is this critique of reason. They say, well, you know, reason is just a tool of the patriarchy. How dare you hold me to these, these principles of logic and rationality? These are just, uh, oppressive, um, strategies for control. Um, of course you can't, it's, it's like you said, you just can't argue with that. So these trends have been, I think, bubbling at least since I would say 2010. And I think they kind of accelerated a little bit in around 2012. And then 2016, it really hit again. Um, but do you agree like that the, the breaking point seems to have been 2020, that we seem to have crossed a Rubicon that year that, that can't, that, that whatever channels there were for productive dialogue um, from these different perspectives prior to that, that just obliterated them that now it's just uh, sort of all against all. Yeah. I, I, I think 2020 was the tipping point for a lot of things. And I, I think one of the things that happened there is that um, the left figured out that they could bully us. They could bully everyone, pretty much everyone, into doing whatever they wanted just by just by shouting science at them. And so, you know, we we see all these these quote unquote scientific arguments for transgenderism and and for for other things, which you know, I mean, they're they're laughable on their face because they're just so absurd. Um, I can do a simple DNA swab and there, there's your science, you know, but, um, but if they, I think they learn if they just yell science uh, and, you know, accuse you of wanting to kill people, that was another tactic that they used. Um, I, th- I think there was not, not exactly equilibrium because they've had the upper hand for a while, but I think they were afraid to push too far because they thought we might push back. And what they learned in 2020 is hardly anybody's going to push back. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the science angle that you were talking about is illustrates again, that, that they don't have to choose a lane because science and the, the scientific methods, scientific ideas have been a target of sort of the, the left in the humanities for some time, this idea that, well, the science is you know, enshrines this sort of Western ways of knowing these, uh, this skepticism, rationality, um, uh, logical, uh, uh, premises. And this has been, you know, something that they have subjected to a lot of criticism for a long time until they turned on a dime and decided the science settled. Here's what the science is. We should all listen to it. Right. Um, it really is disturbing. So you've written quite a bit about leadership uh, and you've served in um, leadership roles in academia. You've served in leadership roles in college athletics. Um, and we've been talking about this mindset. You could call it wokeism. You could call it postmodernism. You could call it uh, ideological progressivism. But I think it's safe to say that it is a mindset, uh, a way of looking at the world. And I'm curious to hear what you have to say about how that mindset lends itself to the demands of leadership. Um, because obviously there's a higher degree of younger people who share this mindset and increasingly they will move into leadership positions. Will they be able to meet the demands of those positions if they start from these premises that we've been discussing? Uh, I mean, the short answer is no, and I, I'm, I'm very concerned about that, um, and not just in academia, because, I mean, I'm going to be out of here in a few years, but, you know, in government, in medicine, um, in, you know, law enforcement, um, in the K-12 schools, uh, 
I mean, the the things that these people believe are are toxic, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I just I mean it descriptively. They're they're toxic. Um, th- these people basically destroy everything they touch. It's like you know their fingers are coated with hydrochloric acid or something. They just they just destroy everything they touch. And I've seen so many uh, of my favorite institutions. You know my uh, my three sons are all Eagle Scouts, and I and I know the Boy Scouts had their had their problems, and you know like some other organizations have had. But uh, but boy, once the left got their hands on that, it just it would be an understatement to say it's not the same anymore. It basically just they just blew up. Um, you know, it also concerns me a little bit, and I guess this is more of a, of a, from a selfish standpoint, as somebody who does a lot of leadership development, uh, you know, going on site and doing training and, and so forth, um, that, you know, all the air is being sucked out of that room by the DEI folks. It's all about DEI. I mean, almost but probably 80% of the leadership development nowadays is about DEI, which, which, which to your point is complete garbage. And, uh, you know, I've, I've said on Twitter and elsewhere that uh, we are, we are rapidly becoming the stupidest generation that ever lived. And part of the problem is that the most educated people among us are the stupidest because they know so much that isn't true. <laughs> you know, all this stuff that they that they they know and they have these credentials and they have these degrees, but so much of what they know simply isn't true. It's wrong and it doesn't work. And it you know, it perfect case in point is that um and I I wrote about this for campus reform today that DEI administrator at Stanford who just made a complete ass of herself um, when they they invited that circuit court judge in to speak. Um, and this was, fill us in on this. I know what you're talking about. This was, okay. Uh, go ahead. So the, the, the fe- apparently the Federalist Society at Stanford had invited a Trump appointed circuit court judge, a guy named, I think his name is Kyle Duncan to come and speak at the law school as a guest of the, of Federalist Society. And um, apparently he would, you know, some people in the crowd were being rude and stuff when he was trying to speak. So this DEI administrator, the associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm still not clear if that's just for the law school or for the entire university. I'm not sure about that. Uh, But she got up there ostensibly to, you know, to, to, quiet the protesters down and to restore order and so forth. And then she just proceeded to give this long speech about this, this judge's uh, decisions. And she didn't mention any specific decisions, how they had harmed people. She never said what harm they had done or, or whom they had harmed. And, and she just went on and on. And her speech was not only was it full of, you know, hackneyed DEI cliches, but it was, it was embarrassing, frankly. It was full of grammatical errors, and I, you know, I guess that's a, a you know a Western construct as well nowadays. But you would expect somebody with an advanced degree to be able to use proper English when they're up there speaking. Um, yeah. I saw this woman's salary; it shocked me. She makes uh, more than double what I make as a full professor. Well, th- that isn't shocking to me at all. First of all, it's in California, yeah, where that much money probably won't get you an apartment downtown. But you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she kept saying how, how uncomfortable it, it, it made her. And then she, and she kept saying, she kept turning to the judge who's standing there looking at her almost pityingly, you know, like lady, you're making an idiot of yourself. And she, she kept saying, uh, I support your right to speak. I, uh, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. And then she would launch into another three minute diatribe. You know, Is this, this the juice for like worth seven the squeeze. Minutes. Is, is it just what? What the heck does that even mean? I mean, it's just, it's 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 just idiotic. Um, it's, it's really like I've thought a lot about what she meant by that, and and yeah. there's a lot of different interpretations. But I think just to take the metaphor literally, what it what it means, translator applies situation is is what you will get out of saying this worth 
what you're going to do by saying. And th- I guess that's it, what, yeah. It starts like th- that premise is so crazy. Like why, if he didn't think it was worth saying, why would he say it? Right. Okay. Like it's, it's so strange to have a third party decide whether what you're saying is or is not worthwhile. It's crazy. A- a- absolutely. And, you know, to your point, she she's not her job is not to be the arbiter of that. Let him speak. Let the students hear it. Let them make up their own minds. But of course, they they can't do that because anybody who speaks truth is yes going to be reviled by by a certain percentage of people, but they're also going to reach people. This is a, the way you reach people is by speaking truth. And so the left cannot allow us to speak truth. They have to shout us down. They they have to, um, you know, ban us from Twitter and <laughs> deplatform us at universities. Because if we speak the truth, some people are going to hear it and go, you know what? That's true. And they they just they can't allow that. But the point I was really getting to was that 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 wasn't it wasn't random. It wasn't an isolated incident, and it wasn't just this one DEI administrator who happens to be an idiot. That's what they're taught. Oh, yeah. In their leadership schools, you know, in these development courses they take. That's exactly what they're taught. So to the point that you began with, are these people going to be well-equipped to lead? Well, there's exhibit A. They are not well-equipped to lead. They they are whatever the opposite of being well equipped to lead is, they're that. Um, and my co-author um, Carl Hayden, who's a philosopher by training, um, what we tried to do in the Nine Virtues was to take the basically the classical and cardinal virtues from you know from uh, Greek and Roman society from the Judeo Christian tradition. And translate them into the modern world. How how people by by incorporating those virtues into their lives can be better people and and better leaders. Uh, and and that's that's still what we're committed to doing. Interestingly, Carl, up until recently, <laughs> would have described himself as a liberal, by which he means, you know, we're in Georgia here, so I'll just say a, an old fashioned Jimmy Carter kind of liberal. Right. You know, um, uh, you know. Uh, I don't I don't know what religion Carl is. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure he's a Christian, but I don't know what denomination. But I'll just say, an, you know, an Episcopalian liberal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's he been kind of red pilled. <laughs> I don't think he would mind me saying that. Um, he's probably still more center, you know, maybe slightly left of center, certainly more than I am. But but he and I both share this idea that if you incorporate these traditional virtues, humility, courage, honesty, you know, perseverance, those, those kinds of things, things that have never in the history of the world been controversial, uh, that if, if you now. do that, you'll be a better person. And the way you become a better leader is, first of all, by becoming a better person. But now all of a sudden we find that we're being crowded out of the space by the DEI folks and and we're not going there. We're not going to we're not going to go in there and say stuff that we don't believe is true just to get contracts or just so people will invite us back. Uh, and, and at the same time, in the sessions that we do, we're 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 getting some pushback on some of these things. Like, I don't know that anybody has said it exactly the way you said it, but but basically that, you know, these are uh, these are Western constructs and. You know, you know, they're they're essentially racist. And, you know, when somebody tells me that logic is racist, I know for a fact that the next thing out of their mouth is not going to be logical. <laughs> and and when somebody tells me that that honesty is racist, then then I know for a fact that they're a liar. So <laughs> right. they're 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 revealing who they are. But unfortunately, they they have. Adam, I'll tell you the thing that shocks me more than anything else. Maybe shock is a strong word, but I I just I can't wrap my head around the outsized influence that people like uh, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi have on the culture right now. Yeah, these these are not. Especially. Talented people 
and again, I don't say that to insult them. I'm just I'm just speaking objectively. They're not exceptionally bright or exceptionally talented. I mean, they're obviously they're bright. They're smart. I think but they're they're, they're grifters. They're grifters. They're they, good at grifting. They 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 absolutely are grifters. But you know, I you remember Jimmy Swaggart? Yes. Jim, Jimmy Swaggart was good at what he did. He was good uh-huh. at what he did. Yes. So so is Kendi and and so is D'Angelo. Um, you, you I don't know, know. I had the thought back in 2000, I was watching the, the Bush Gore debates and I thought to myself, we're a country of at the time over, you know, over 300 million people. And these two guys are the best we can do <laughs> out of 300 million people. These two guys are the best we can do. I'm not a, I'm not an especially gifted public speaker or anything like that. I could do a better job in a debate than either one of those guys. Yeah. How did they how did they get there? And it's a rhetorical question. Oh, their families have money and you know, they they uh you know made the right friends and, and I, I I know what the answer to that question is, but but how how did we get here when when our only choice is the lesser of two evils? And if and you remember, that, I think about that time sometimes like when I look back on Bush v. Gore, one of the things that really strikes me is that it, I don't know if you obviously Saturday Night Live is terrible. It was it was terrible even in 2000, but it was less terrible then. But like at that time when they would do sketches about those Bush versus Gore debates, the big joke, the running gag was that they were both saying exactly the same thing. And I think that it was only 23 years ago that the gag was that the two candidates were both saying the same thing, that they were indistinguishable from one another. Um, you know, we've come along we, to, to use uh, another sort of matrix metaphor, I guess. We've gone a long way down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just I want you to know that uh, that Saturday Night Live was awesome in like 1978. It was it was really awesome in like 1993. Um, it was only really like, and this is the same story. What happened to university? Like once once they learned piety, right? Once the show became concerned with what was due piety and what was not due right. piety, right? It stopped being funny because right. part of part of humor, especially that show, was irreverence. And being irreverent towards things that we already hate and despise just isn't funny. You irreverence only works if you're hitting up, um, right. and they won't do it anymore. Well, um, I'll file that under the heading of what I said earlier. They 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 destroy everything they touch. Right, Hollywood comedy. They're trying to destroy sports right now, which which I take that very personally. Yeah, but uh, but they've succeeded to some degree. I I don't sit down and watch basketball games the way I used to, and I I've done that all my life. I've it, I've loved it, but I just just the the wokeness that permeates the culture and the commercials that come on and everything. It's just like it 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 makes me tired. You think that the uh, this is kind of a side question, but do you think that the people who create this messaging? Is it in earnest? In other words, do they really think that they're doing good and speaking truth? Or is this kind of messaging a a means to foment dissent, right? A means to to uh, create sort of cultural instability and a, a culture of distrust. What do you think about that? I mean, I think some of the people who are behind it might be trying to foment that culture of distrust. But I, I think... I think the the people who are doing it and I and I read something recently that that really made a lot of sense to me and that is that in in a lot of these woke companies it's the millennial middle managers that are pushing all this crap. Um I you know I think they're true believers. Um I think they you know we can look at it and say well that's stupid you're just going to lose half your audience how how in the world is that a good strategy for selling products but i honestly think they don't care i th- i think virtue signaling is more important to them than making money now that that seems to me to be an unsustainable business model and i i think some companies are discovering that you know we we say get woke go broke and 
Sadly, that isn't always true, but you do see lots of examples of it. But it's almost like they don't care. I mean, Hollywood makes these movies that nobody goes to see because they're boring and and they're they're preachy and people just aren't interested. But then then they give them awards and go on about how how wonderful they are. And, and I'm thinking, do you do you live to lose money? I mean, is that what you're doing or? You know, and but I, I guess their model is then they throw out the next Marvel movie and it makes, you know, 180 million. And so then they invest that money back into all the, the woke garbage. Right. I mean, that's been the publishing industry's model for 50 years. Yeah. The record so, industry, too. The record, the record industry, yeah, record industry, too. So. So you mentioned middle management, and I think sometimes that. Oh, there's certainly true believers in academia, but I also think that um, young students, like young graduate students, like 22, 23, 24 years old, who are still sort of forming themselves as a thinker, as a, a researcher, these kinds of things, I think that there's so much peer pressure that they start to believe that the mark of intelligence is thinking certain things to be true, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like, how good of a thinker are you? It's like, you know, if you believe that trans women are women, well, then you're an intelligent person because what it means to be intelligent is to think this, that, and the other thing and just check on down the list. And right. so I, I wonder sometimes like how much of our problem is kind of coercive in the sense that it's just um, this, these ideas are modeled as virtuous ideas um, that are sort of arcane, that only a really intelligent person can see how true this thing is. And that because the normies don't believe it or because they believe something else is the mark of their outsideness. And if you want to be on the inside, then you have to at least pretend that you are one of the ones who are enlightened enough to understand why, say, trans women are really women. Um, and that's and so in that sense, it's almost like a virus in the true sense. I mean, if you spend too much time around these these people and if you have designs on an academic career, well, your pronouns have to be in your Twitter bio because you're just not going to get an interview if they're not. How do we deal with that? How do we address that? Well, it's, you know, it's the, um, it's the story of the emperor's new clothes writ large, right? I mean, that's what, that's what that fairy tale is about. That's exactly what's going on. Um, you know, what, what I try to do and, and, you know, I have very limited reach within academia. I mean, mostly just my own students, right? I mean, I guess I, I write stuff and maybe other people read it and I, and I do, not infrequently have other conservative professors reach out to me and say, thanks for saying that. And I, you know, I, I appreciate it, but mostly I'm just dealing with my own students. And so what I, what I decided years ago, when I, when all of this first really, uh, when it became evident to me that this is what's going on and this is where we're headed. And it wasn't just the kind of, you know, liberal professors that I grew up with that it was, it had gone way beyond that. My goal is to help my students learn to think for themselves. And I know that sounds like a cliche. And part of the reason it sounds like a cliche to my ears is because 30 years ago, that's what everybody was doing. Um, but but now, you know, it really sets you apart. Um, I talk about this in, in my book, Think Better, Write Better, how we, you know, there's this, there's this huge disconnect. Um, we have survey after survey after survey for the last 10, 15 years. Um, you know, one of them, for example, conducted by, by pay scale, you know, they surveyed like 70,000 managers. So it wasn't small, but there are dozens other of other surveys with smaller groups um, conducted by the Chronicle of Higher Education, the American Association of Universities and Colleges. I mean, dozens of these at this point, and they all show the same thing. The, they ask the employers, what do college graduates do well and what do they do poorly? And the number one on the list of things they do poorly is always write. They can't write. 
That's number one. And number two, close on its heels is they can't think. <laughs> and and that's why I wrote my book. And that's why I gave it the title that I did. Right. Um, so we've got universities claiming, not just claiming, but shouting from the rooftops that they're teaching critical thinking. And then these kids get into the workforce and and the end users, the people that are hiring them are saying, well, no, not so much. They can't they can't do it. And so either the universities are just flat out lying or the two groups mean something different when they use the term critical thinking. And I and I, I obviously I think that's what it is when when employers, when businesses say critical thinking, what they mean is the ability to use your brain to solve a problem. Right. Just to put it as simply as possible. Um, whereas in academia, we've conflated old fashioned critical thinking with critique. Yes. You know, and, and they are not the same thing. And this is this is one of the things that I teach. Um, and, you know, to your point about uh, that you made a few minutes ago, you've become a little bit more of an activist in class. And, you know, I may find myself going that direction, too. But what I've always believed is if if I can if I can teach my students to think for themselves, they will eventually come around to a more conservative point of view, maybe not as conservative as I am, but at least right of center. Because the left makes no sense. We've gotten to the point where nothing they say makes any sense. None of it's logical. How do we know it's not logical? Because they've declared logic to be racist. They say such and such is true. And we say, no, it isn't. And they say, yes, it is. And we say, well, no. And here's why it isn't. It's not logical. And they say, oh, well, logic is racist. Like, oh, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> what are you supposed to do with that? What that means is that your point of view isn't logical, which is what I was saying to begin with. So I, I think if we can teach kids to think for themselves, they will eventually sort things out. The problem is, obviously, there aren't very many of us trying to do this. Um, it's it's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much danger there is of my bosses seeing this podcast, but it's one of the reasons I'm hanging on. Uh, I mean, I love what I do. I can't imagine not doing it. But I also think if if I leave, they're going to replace me with some 28-year-old wokester who's going to be teaching them absolute garbage that is not going to help them in their in their professional lives. It's not going to help them in their personal lives. It's going to make them less happy. It's going to make them miserable. And by the way, we know this is true because the depression and suicide rates on college campuses are just shooting through the roof yeah and also, also by the way to my earlier point about the stupidest generation did you see the article the study that came out a week or two ago that um iqs the average the nation's average iq has gone down for the first time in 100 years yes and it's worst in the 18 to 22 year old age bracket colleges and universities today are literally making people stupider that's that's not an exaggeration sometimes i think they're making me stupider <laughs> I, I, honest, honestly i do sometimes i think like you know you can only be around like essentially people with this woke progressive mindset right at a certain point like they talk and talk and talk and you're thinking well that's crazy that's crazy that's crazy but you look around you and everybody else is going yeah yeah and at a certain point and, you have to like, say is it me like am i crazy exactly um, i i wrote a piece about this for american thinker a year or so ago the title of it is we're not the crazy ones <laughs> you know i mean i mean look the others it i have that i have that same conversation with myself sometimes adam i'm like <laughs> am i wrong am i am i the crazy one and then i think to myself no the other side <laughs> thinks that men can have babies. Right. <laughs> End of discussion. I'm not the crazy one. Yes. Well, that's that's uh, that's that's something that I, I reassure myself with, too, that certain. And I think like like you said, like uh, one of the things that has made me more activist is sometimes I think like it we're at the point now where in four years of college education, I could be the only professor 
that yes. students here make a joke about masking. I could be the only professor who says that maybe unfettered illegal immigration isn't a totally good thing for the United States, right? I could be like, uh, run it down the line. Like I could be like, they might only hear one person say it the entire time. Um, That's that's true. You know, I say to them sometimes, you know, like if if you get sort of angry with what I say, bear in mind, like, don't worry, because you're not going to hear anybody else say it. Um, (laughs) And if, you know, if you make it through four years of college without ever getting offended, you got ripped off. Um, Absolutely. Are are you do you at least issue a trigger warning before you say these things, Adam? I, of course, of course, um, <laughs> of course. I actually on my syllabus, uh, I have a section that says I do not give trigger warnings. So okay. if if you are uh, sensitive to per- other perspectives that you disagree with, I recommend you take another class. If you decide to carry forward, consider this your warning. You've been warned. <laughs> I have a section on my syllabus that basically says, um, it, you know, get over it. Yes. That's good. You know, um, what I what I actually say is that being offended, first of all, is a choice. Offense is even if something is objectively offensive, and hardly anything is objectively offensive. Offense is something that is taken, not given. So you can simply choose, and I'm not and I'm not just talking about my class. I'm talking about life. You yeah. Wanna, you want to be successful in life. You can simply choose not to be offended. And secondly. The the proper response to being, you know, to something that is objectively offensive is not to get your panties in a wad. I don't literally use that language in the syllabus. Um, the proper response is to, you know, formulate a cogent rebuttal. And that's what this class is about. That's what we're trying to learn how to do. So if you think you have a better idea and you can make a good argument for it, then I'm going to I'm going to help you learn how to do that. This traces back, though, to to the mindset we were talking about. I really say you say being offended is a choice. I agree with you. But I, I think many of these people understand that it's a choice. And being offended is the desirable choice in this. I, sense, I guess so. Right. To be offended yeah. is to be victimized. And, of course, to be a victim or to have been a victim is a kind of um, currency. Right. It's it's a rhetorical currency, if nothing else. And so, you know, to not be offended in some sense is to leave money on the table. Right. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good point. Yeah. I, no, no, no wonder they're so miserable. <laughs> there's Seriously, a lot of money. No wonder they're all depressed. There's a lot of money to take off the table. Yeah. Uh, so we should probably wrap it up. But let me ask you this. If. Okay. If there was one thing, if if Professor Jenkins was the grand chancellor of the American University for a day that you think we could do to to policy wise or, or really in any other sense to get us back on the right track, not to get us to where we need to be, but to move us in the right direction, what would that thing be? Well, I, I think we need to follow Governor DeSantis's example and and just utterly lay waste to the DEI departments, CRT, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, I wrote about that recently for campus reform and, and, you know, I'm somebody that, that has written extensively over the years about free speech and uh, academic freedom. And I've been a big believer and supporter of those things, but I, I think they have been horribly abused by many of our colleagues. And uh, it's, it's to the point where, you know, the cancer has, the cancer has grown to the point where all you can do is cut it out. Yeah. And, and if that means, I mean, here's the way I see it. They brought this on themselves. Um, They could have, they could have moderated their position years ago. They could have continued teaching these things as theories instead of fact. And no one would ever have said a word. It's to me, it's, it's, it's a lot like the abortion question. Um, if they hadn't tried to push abortion up to the day of birth and beyond, I don't think anyone, I don't think that Roe v. Wade would ever have been overturned. I don't think there would have been any groundswell to, I, I think as long as in, you know, in, in Bill Clinton's fame, famous words, it was, you know, safe 
Um, legal and rare. Yes, exactly. Safe, legal and rare. Safe, legal and rare. I, I, th- I think even even the people that were pro-life, I, I think that for most people, that was an acceptable compromise because we realized how how wide the gulf was there and, and what a volatile issue it was. But when they just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, same thing with the trans issue. I don't care if some dude dresses up like a woman, you know, I, I, it, do, it doesn't affect me at all. But when they came after the kids, that's when we put our foot down and said no more. That or when they make claims on my speech um, and yeah, say, yes, I need to yes. change this or that about how exactly. I think or speak. Right. Um, and, and it's the same with DEI. They, they, you know, they get upset. Well, you know, you're telling us what we can say and what we can't. Well, you know, welcome to my world, buddy. I've been living in that world for 40 years. Uh, and so, you know, now the shoe's on the other foot, but I, I have I have no sympathy for you whatsoever because it's it's destroying the university. And we just we just have to cut it out. And I don't know if that one thing by itself will be enough, as, as you said. But if I had to pick one thing, that would be it. Well, Governor DeSantis is doing really good things. And Governor Abbott in Texas has started to come around on a little bit of this. Uh, he uh, uh, forbid. Um, state agencies from using DEI and their hiring practices, um, which I think was part of the reason that my university was um, so quick to take down our anti-racism statement on our page. I think that they decided maybe now is not the time to push the envelope, although I can't say for sure what drove that. Well, I I have a son who's in graduate school. I'm not going to say where or in what field because I don't want to harm his career. Um, but he's probably going to be going on the market in the fall. And he is he's excited that he now has the entire state of Texas. You know, he he's he's checking them off. I got Florida. I got Texas. I can apply at those places. Uh, I don't have to worry about writing a, a diversity statement, you know, and trying to thread the needle between saying things that are going to be acceptable to the committee, but not saying things that I don't actually believe. Cause he said, I'm not going to do that for, yeah. you know, for which I'm very proud of him. But, uh, but you know, he's a smart guy and, and uh, I think he'll be a brilliant professor. Somebody be lucky to get him. But a lot of these schools aren't going to have a shot cause he's just not going to apply there. Yeah. But now he's got oh. Texas and it's, it's uh, you know, what, what do you, what do you guys have about, a, about uh, 80, 90,000 universities down there? There's a there's a lot of them. And and with uh, with people pouring into the state from all over, same thing that's happened in Florida. I imagine there will be a lot of faculty lines opening Um, now who those who those lines will go to. You know, they have more cunning ways than the DEI statement to to force their ends. Uh, It's it's a start. Yeah. Well, Godspeed to your son. And and. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, Dr. Rob Jenkins, you can check out his most recent book is Think Better, Write Better, right? That's absolutely correct. Yes. All right. Great. My colleague at at, uh, Campus Reform Online. Thanks again, Rob. Thank you so much, Adam. I enjoyed it very much. Sure.